Hi everyone, welcome to the 10th episode of Cayman Podcast. I'm your host, Denise Luriz, Cayman Postdoctoral Fellow at Buffett Institute for Global Affairs, Northwestern University. Today, I'm very lucky to have the new Cayman Postdoctoral Fellow, my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Anush Suni, as the host of this episode, and she will have a conversation with Dr. David Leopold, another postdoctoral research fellow at the Leibniz Centrum Moderna Orient Berlin. They will have a conversation about his research, his new book, and the recent conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh Artsakh. Let me first introduce Anush to you. Anush Tamar Suni is the 2020-2022 Kemal Modern Turkish Studies postdoctoral fellow at Northwestern University. She earned her PhD in anthropology from the University of California, Los Angeles in 2019. For her doctoral dissertation entitled Pounces of Violence, Ruination and the Politics of Memory in Anatolia, she spent over two years between 2015 and 2017 in the region of Van in southeastern Turkey, conducting ethnographic research. She is currently working on her book project, which investigates questions of memory and the material legacies of state violence in the region of Van, with a focus on historic Armenian and contemporary Kurdish communities. Prior to coming to Northwestern, she was a Manugim postdoctoral research fellow in the Armenian Studies program and the Department of Anthropology at the University of Michigan. Now I'm turning the mic over to Anush for her to introduce David, followed by their conversation. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you so much, Denise. It is a pleasure to be hosting this podcast. Today, we have as our guest, David Leupold, who is joining us remotely from Berlin. David Leupold is currently a postdoctoral research fellow at the Leibniz Centrum Moderne Orient Berlin in the research unit representations of the past as a mobilizing force. Previously, he was a Manugyan postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Michigan. Dr. Leupold received his PhD in social sciences from Humboldt Universität zu Berlin in 2018. His research has appeared in the journal Iran and the Caucasus, and this year his first book entitled Embattled Dreamlands, The Politics of Contesting Armenian Kurdish and Turkish Memory, was published by Rutledge. Dr. Leupold's new book explores the intertwined histories of Armenian, Turkish, and Kurdish communities with a particular focus on the violent history of the genocide of Ottoman Armenians in 1915. With his proficiency in Turkish, Kurdish, Armenian, Russian, Farsi, German, and English, among others, Dr. Leupold brings together a wide variety of historical and contemporary written sources, as well as oral history interviews that he conducted during fieldwork in both Armenia and in southeastern Turkey. Welcome, David, to the Cayman podcast. Thank you, Anush. It's a pleasure to be here. So, in Embattled Dreamlands, you dive deep into the opposing historical trajectories of the Armenian, Turkish, and Kurdish communities of southeastern Anatolia that are in your words, quote, fatally tied together. My first question for you is, how did you come to this research project and what questions and constraints guided you through the research process? Yeah, thank you. One could say that the research dates back or the idea of the research date backs to over a decade ago to the year 2009 when I studied as an exchange student at the Ege University in Izmir 
And I had a chance to visit with a close Kurdish friend of mine, his native town of Batman, as well as Mardin and Diyarbakir. And there I also got to know about the Islamization of many of his family members who had been previously of a Syrian Christian or Armenian descent. And uh, most of the stories that I did encounter in the east, southeast of Turkey, in some sense, challenged the more rigid categories that we would normally associate with being with Armenian, Kurdish or Turkish national memory. Instead, it seems rather that they brought back this uh, polyvocality that Stefan Zweig describes uh, in his book, for example, as the world of yesterday. And I think in some sense that this was really the kind of point of departure that defined my quest. And I think I somehow understand my quest as bringing back the polyvocality and the multiversetness of the pre-national past. And in specifically in this regard, I more and more started to realize that also other aspects such as locality, generation, family bonds and worldview played a crucial role in forming memory in both Turkey and Armenia. For example, we can think of Armenians from Ban and Moshin Butlis having very different accounts of their history, or Kurds sympathetic of the Kurdish movement versus Kurds who are voting for the current government. And we also see how gender and age plays a significant role. Uh, for example, the eyewitness accounts of men, women and children who survived the genocide are significantly different due to the different way in which these two members have access to society, to different spheres of social life. At the same time, I also saw how the accounts of very different people, for example, a female Armenian engineer from Moscow or a male Kurdish drug driver from Bitlis, might have, in fact, a lot of things in common. And this was, in some sense, forming the guiding idea of my research, which was to elicit these bridging patterns, as I call them, the patterns through which we can bridge narratives from both sides across the divide that lies open with the three opposing national narratives. Um, during my research, I endured different constraints, faced different obstacles. On the Armenian side, the biggest challenge was to learn Armenian within the relatively short period because my language proficiency was relatively poor at the time that I arrived and I had to get within one year to the level that I was able to conduct independently interviews as I lacked any proficiency of Russian at that time. In Turkey, I was better equipped in terms of language. However, I had only a very short period available for conducting my research compared to the one year in Armenia. I was only for two months in the uh, Kurdish region of Turkey. And at the same time, it was also coinciding with the elections of 2015. And this very much also complicated my ability to, co to conduct interviews, as it was a politically very charged atmosphere. There were a constant military and police control, uh, which made it more difficult, I think, to conduct this research under these conditions. Uh, and ultimately, I would say that one of the biggest challenges was to uh, be able to approach very different people with very different worldviews and very different uh, ways and approaches to 1915, to the genocide, from perspective that is emotionally as unbiased as possible. In the end, I was conducting interviews with members of the militarist Hezbollah, as well as sympathizers of the PKK, different nationalists of different camps, as well as also internationalists, communists, and um, sympathizers of Sufi Islam. So, and I think that was always a challenge for me to find the right access to these very diverse groups that I did interview. Speaking of what a difficult history and a, and a violent history and a difficult terrain you did your research in, 
you really have done a, an admirable and remarkable job, especially in terms of approaching these topics with in, incredible sensitivity and care, and also learning all of these languages to such a degree that you're able to talk to people across various divides, language and borders. For my second question, in your book, you write that, quote, national histories claim to be self-evident, yet the reality looks much different, unquote. With the politics of memory as your analytic lens, you deconstruct and reconstruct the opposing Turkish, Armenian, and Kurdish national narratives and the various myths on which they are built. You develop a four-part analytical scheme through which to examine memory and national narratives, that is, narrating, silencing, performing, and mapping. Secondly, you delineate how the various national narratives correspond to three archetypes of national myth. Could you tell us about how you came to these four domains and what they demonstrate and how these archetypal myths relate to one another? Yeah, sure. I think one of my central arguments is that while national histories may appear very evident to those who believe in them and to those who advocate it, it actually takes vast resources, political resources, to maintain their discursive power. And for these four domains, these op- which I understand as operational categories, form a matrix th- which allow us to better understand how state and also state-like actors craft what we then perceive as historical truths. For conceptualizing the first domain of memory politics, which I refer to as narrating, I greatly rely on the sociologist Bernhard Fochtner and his conceptualization of melodrama as a plotting that offers, I quote, heroic clarity and re-establishes a moral universe in which good and evil are clearly demarcated, in which a struggle between light and darkness advocates to the audience how things should be, end quote. In juxtaposition to this stands silencing that is in some sense the strategic oppression of elements that run counter to one's own national story. Here I draw mainly from the social anthropologist Mary Douglas and her ideas on institutional forgetting. And I think we see with regard to all three national narratives that the biggest uh, taboo is the role of ethnic cleansing, expulsion, and in the case of the Turkish narrative, even genocide. And I think that with regard to the three national narratives that I discuss in my book, I think one of the greatest taboo, the greatest shadowy place of silencing, refers to the foundational crimes that lie at the formation of the modern nation state. And with regard to the third, I uh, look at performing, and that refers to how the national narrative is then inscribed into the body of its citizens. Here I draw from the sociologist Todo Kulic, and his work on memory politics in post-Yugoslavia, he argues there that official cultures of memorialization bring in line the perception of the past with the values of the ruling political culture. And I look here both at the official commemorations at the occasion of the 100th anniversary of the genocide, as well as what I frame as a blocking myth that is a story that counters the other story that is the 100th anniversary commemorations of the victory in Gallipoli, which coincided in the same year. Finally, as the fourth domain of memory politics, I look at mapping, and mapping that refers, according to my understanding, to how the national narrative is inscribed into the geographical landscape. Mountain rivers, villages are renamed from Armenian, Kurdish, Assyrian to Turkish, and old monuments in place of worship are torn down in this process and replaced often by new markers of national identity. The political scientist Herfried Münkli here speaks of a Verdenkmalung, that is a monumentalization of the landscape, the act of turning the geography into a national museum. 
Um, regarding the three archetypes of the national myths, they can be thought of in some sense of what Jean-François Lutat calls the meta-narratives. That is the stories behind the stories. Behind the Armenian national narrative, for example, we can see the archetype of a Christian stronghold. That is the idea of a nation that breaks free from the yoke of the Muslim Turk. However, we see that this is not a peculiar national Armenian narrative, but we can see, see similar framings of history also in, other, in the case of other post-Ottoman states, such as in Bulgaria, Serbia, or in Greek historiography. Behind the Turkish national narrative, on the other hand, I see the archetype of a step-in-the-back myth, like eine Deutschstoßlegende, as you would say in German, which is characteristic for empires that transform into nation-states. Here we see the story of a benevolent imperial ruler upset by the betrayal of the subaltern, in this case Armenians, but very similar also to how the Russian imperial narrative frames violence against Circassians in a very similar manner. Ultimately, we have the force majeure myth, which is essentially a narrative of externalization. And this one we encounter with regard to the Kurdish national narrative. No longer Kurds killed Armenians, but an abstract driving force framed here as capitalist modernity is to be blamed for the violence. This narrative is typical for various nation states forming out of a left-wing anti-colonial struggle, I would argue. This is really an interesting lens to look at not only this context, but also many others, both in post-Ottoman lands and elsewhere that are marked by histories of violence and will be of interest to scholars interested in the politics of memory. So next, I want to ask you about the evocative title of your book, Embattled Dreamlands, and your main ethnographic case study, the Greater Vaughan region, which you describe as both a mnemonic frontier and an alien homeland. First, could you unpack for us this vivid and perhaps even haunting phrase, embattled dreamlands? And second, can you elaborate for us why the Lake Vaughan region is so significant in your study of the entwined history and memory of Kurdish and Armenian communities? and what these two concepts of mnemonic frontier and alien homeland elucidate. Sure. Uh, I understand the greater Van region as an embattled dreamland because, to my understanding, it is the geography where the retrotopia of the past, that is Western Armenia or Arab Mutian Hayastan, and the utopia of a future Kurdistan, Bakur Kurdistan, collide with the present-day reality of Eastern Turkey. In this sense, it is a geography that not only lives in the day-to-day -day experiences of present-day residents, but at the same time, it also lives in the imaginations and memories of those populations expelled from the region a century ago. At the same time, however, I think it is also an alien homeland, and an alien homeland for both for those people who live in it and those who visit it from Armenia or uh, the diaspora. The population who is living there today, which is mainly Sunni Kurds as well as Alevis and Turks, come to the realization that they are making themselves at home in a geography cluttered with the ruins of those expelled more than a century ago. We see Assyrian monasteries, Armenian churches, and Yezidi graveyards. However, those who visited, that is Armenians, Assyrians, Yezidis, find they are not the lost homeland of their descendants, but a place which has evolved over the last hundred years into the home of other residents with their own political struggles, dreams, and fears. Uh, ultimately, it is a geography that challenges the national imagination of all three communities, I argue. Thus, I frame it as a mnemonic frontier that is a site where counter-narratives manifest themselves and push back the nationalist narratives. They manifest themselves here in oral narration. We can think, for example, of Kurdish Deng Bej, 
on Armenian-Kurdish cohabitation artifacts. We can think of Armenian cross stones in the courtyards of the municipality in Bitlis. Toponymy, we can think of practice of using the former Armenian and Assyrian village names by local populations, as well as Armenian and Assyrian loanwords in local vernaculars. The everyday life experience thus opens up a pathway, I think, to reimagine the region beyond the rigid national boundaries. And in your writing, you really paint a vivid picture of the Van region and how it is interpreted and experienced by these disparate but intimately linked communities. In your work, through detailed historical comparison, you complicate those stories that delineate clear roles for perpetrators and victims. And you show how exclusionary national narratives diligently excise those events that contradict their message. Recently, we have seen the tragic escalation of conflict in the region that you study, specifically in the reignited war between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh-Artsakh. Your research and writing on the history of these contested geographies bear only too heavily on the ongoing fighting today. In your book, you write, quote, the dream of the nation in its essence does not break away from the nightmare of past time violence. In contrast, it is precisely, precisely the nightmares of the past that fuel the ethno-national dreams of the present, unquote. My question is, how does your research on the politics of memory help us to understand the roots realities, and possible directions of this renewed conflict. In fact, it's interesting because when I uh, finished my book, I devoted my last chapter to a wider discussion on how the irreconciled violence of the past ends up igniting violence and counter-violence again. And I also bring there the example of the Karabakh War, which I think is very illustrative and a very tragic example of this. When in February 1988, in the wake of the Karabakh War, Crowds of people gathered on Lenin Square in the Armenian Soviet Republic to demand the territorial reunification of Armenia and the Azerbaijani enclave of Karabakh, movement called so-called Miyatsum. More than a third of all posters shown at protests explicitly referred to the Armenian genocide. This is something that was very well traced back in an ethnological study by the Armenian ethnologist Harutsu Marutsian. But as we know, this attempt to describe the present with what Marx calls the borrowed language of the past often proves to be a fallacy. The decades of experience of Armenian-Azerbaijani coexistence were suppressed suddenly in favor of an idea that the other was not a Soviet brethren nation, but the historical archenemy itself. The results of the war, I think, is known to all of us. However, 26 years later, we see now again a reversion where the irreconciled violence again enters the stage, and we see a remake of the first Karabakh war, however, now with inverted signs. Now it is the trauma of Azerbaijani IDPs who were expelled in the first war, which are now instrumentalized by the Azerbaijani memory regime to justify a war of aggression, which may lead ultimately again to the forced expulsion of Karabakh Armenians. In this sense, replacing refugees by creating new refugees on the other side. However, I think that the only way out of this vicious circle would be to recognize in the most radical form that the trauma of the other is fundamentally equal to one's own. Instead, however, we see unfortunately hierarchies are constructed in which the pain of one is shown as superior to the pain of the other. The, and the lack of empathy will in the end just cause more pain to both. Or as a famous Persian saying goes, blood cannot be washed away by blood. 
Thank you, David. Your work really provides a valuable insight on this tragic situation. And your last chapter uh, provides a very helpful historical discussion of the roots of this conflict. For my last question, could you tell us about any new projects that you are currently working on? Sure. Um, after finishing this monograph, I turned to my new project on memory and materiality in the so-called former Soviet South, that is in Central Asia and the Caucasus. Here, look at the material afterlife of the Soviet city of the future in Russian called Gorod Bodusheva and its remnants in present-day Yerevan and Bishkek, that is uh, the capital of Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia. My guiding question here is how the relics of an abandoned future can inform the imaginaries of residents today. I want to understand how do materially ingrained visions of a socialist future relate to the post-utopian present of what seems right now like an eternal capitalism of today. And in this context, I want to understand also how does this condition the present-day struggles for social infrastructure, green spaces and affordable living spaces in both Yerevan and Bishkek. Again, here we could argue that the past returns to the political stage to challenge the taken-for-granted assumptions that arrest our imaginations in the present. Thank you so much, David. That sounds wonderful. We look forward to hearing about and reading your upcoming work. It has been really a pleasure talking with you today, and thank you so much for joining us today on the Cayman podcast. I thank you. I would like to thank both Anush and David for this wonderful conversation. You can find the links to David's book and academia website and other works in the show notes for this podcast. Thank you for listening to us. Keep following us. <laughs>